My name is Trey. I'm one of the pastors here, and, and uh, God has given me some, uh, a great privilege to be able to teach through the Bible with you. And we're in the book of Acts, and today we'll be in Acts 25 and 26. Uh, as we begin, though, I want to talk a little bit about the heritage of Christianity. To, to know that we have such a rich heritage. When you're talking about uh, theologians and, and you look back at uh, Augustine and, and Luther and Calvin and, and Wesley and all the things that we can glean from those theologians, uh, th- then you look at uh, all of the history of the acts of Christian charity as it was the church who would care for the sick. Uh, it would be the church that fed the poor. It would be the, the church that established institutions of higher learning. But for me, because you know that I enjoy music and I'll break out into song during the sermon sometimes, I actually really love the inspiration of the old hymn writers. If you go back and look at the stories behind the hymns and behind those who wrote the hymns, a little lady named Fanny Bryce who, who, would, um, who, who would write over a hundred hymns and you know that she was blind. Um, or, or, of course, there was uh, uh, Iris Sankey who would travel with the evangelist Dwight Moody uh, during his uh, revivals and would go from place to place uh, singing and, and preparing people's hearts uh, for the message. Of course, there's John Newton, the, the one-time slave trader who gave his life to Jesus and then would write the immortal words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And, and, and that song still resonates uh, in, in our hearts today, uh, so many years later. But this morning, as I begin, I want to talk about a man named Philip Bliss. Philip Bliss was the man who lost part of his family in a tragedy uh, as a ship carrying his family across the Atlantic Ocean sank. And uh, uh, he got a telegram from his wife once they arrived back safely into Europe. His wife said in the telegram, saved alone, meaning that his daughters had drowned and they were lost at sea. It was through that tragedy, though, that Bliss wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And in that, he says, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when, when good things are happening, when, when it's peaceful, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, when, when I'm faced with those tough times, whatever my lot, he said, you have taught me to say it is well. It is well with my soul. Uh, before that tragedy, though, Philip Bliss had already begun to, to write hymns. Um, we, we know hymns like Hallelujah, What a Savior was written by Philip Bliss. Uh, That begins, Man of Sorrows, what a name. For the Lamb of God was slain, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Or or wonderful words of life, sing them over again to me. Wonderful words of life. Those all came from Philip Bliss. In 1871, though, five years before his death, Philip Bliss had heard a sermon. And in the sermon, something that the preacher said just really resonated with him. The the preacher was up there and he was talking and he says, listen, he who is almost persuaded is almost saved. But to be almost saved is to be entirely lost. That's what the preacher had said. And that just resonated with Philip Bliss. And so he wrote the hymn appropriately titled, Almost Persuaded. Now, I'm not going to sing it, 
But I do want to share with you the lyrics. This is how Almost Persuaded goes. Almost persuaded now to believe. Almost persuaded Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, Go, Spirit, go thy way. Some more convenient day on thee I'll call. The last verse, very scary verse. Almost persuaded, harvest is past. Almost persuaded, doom comes at last. Because almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, that bitter wail. Almost but lost. Folks, that tragedy happens every day, you know? People who decide that on the fence is where they're going to stay when it comes to putting their faith in Jesus. That they're not quite sure if they really want to do it or not, and so they stay on the fence. And they do not place their trust in Jesus' sacrifice to make them right with God. This morning, I really want to address those of you who have been very faithful in showing up to church this last year as we've gone through the book of Acts. And specifically, those of you who continue to come, even though you would consider yourself still checking things out. I've told you that those who gather here each week, you find yourselves on different paths. There's some of you on the path of discipleship. There's some of you who are on the path of discovery or on the path of doubt, you you still aren't quite sure about the claims of Christianity. You're not sure if they're real, or if they're relevant, or if they are right. Now, if that is you, and you have been giving us your trust for weeks or months now, today I want you to pay special attention. Because what the Bible is going to teach us today is that to stay an almost- disciple is actually to miss out on the greatest blessing that you could ever receive. And here's the tragedy. It won't be because you didn't hear about it. It's because you thought you had time or you just thought it was more comfortable to stay on the fence when it comes to your faith. This morning we're going to be uh, finishing up chapter 25 and going through chapter 26. And, And this Uh, This event that we're going to look at, this is the event that Philip Bliss was writing the song Almost Persuaded About. And we're going to find out uh, what the response of King Agrippa has to do with our response today. So let's open to, to Acts chapter 25. We're going to begin with verse 23 as it is recorded. The next day, King Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered into the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, who was the governor at the time, the Roman governor, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa... Now, remember, King Agrippa was the figurehead king of the Jews by this time, and he had come to curry favor with Festus. Now Festus is bringing Paul before King Agrippa and says to King Agrippa, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, You see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. (laughs) I found that he has done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. 
Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. And then chapter 26 begins, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourselves. Well, here we go again. Paul is having to defend himself, to defend his faith, to defend his decision to follow Jesus. He's been in prison in Caesarea for two years on trumped-up false charges. And now, given the opportunity to go to Jerusalem, he says, no, I would rather go to Rome. So he appeals to the highest Roman authority, being a Roman citizen himself. He wants to be seen by Caesar. So just like God had promised him, Paul's going to go to Rome. But before they take him to Rome, King Agrippa comes into the picture. He's showing up again to kind of curry favor with the new governor. And so the governor says, listen, Agrippa, you might be able to give me a little insight. So he brings him up to speed on Paul's case. And Festus wants to know his take. Now, why? Why is King Agrippa's take so important? Well, for the sake of content, really really quick, for the sake of context, let me tell you who King Agrippa II was. First of all, King Agrippa II was the great-grandson of the, of the great Herod, King Herod the Great. This was the guy, King Herod the Great, who had ordered the death of all baby boys in, in Bethlehem and the surrounding countryside in an effort to wipe out the baby Jesus. If you remember that story around Christmas time, that's this guy's great-grandfather. Also, King Agrippa II is the son of King Agrippa I, who was the king who ordered James the Apostle beheaded because of his testimony about Jesus back in Acts chapter 12. Also, King Agrippa would be the nephew of the guy who beheaded John the Baptist and who mocked Jesus, who came to him on trial. So, my point is this. King Agrippa would have been very, very familiar with Christianity. He would, have, he would have understood who Jesus was and, and what these disciples were all about. In fact, in verse 26, later on, Paul will be speaking about King Agrippa. And he says, listen, the king knows. He knows about these matters. I, I, I'm speaking to him with confidence because I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. He's not been hiding off in a corner someplace. He knows. So it's important for Festus to get Agrippa's take on the matter. And Agrippa even had said back in chapter 25, verse 22, I would like to hear this man myself. So Paul is brought before them and begins to speak there in chapter 26, verse 2. He says this, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, what happens next is one of those interesting phenomena of the Bible. My daughter, Jayana, about four, five, six years ago, decided that she wanted to read through the Bible from cover to cover. Anybody ever try that endeavor? Like, I'm going to start with Genesis. And Genesis is great. 
uh, very exciting. Then you get into Exodus, and that's pretty good too. And then you get into Leviticus, and you're like, oh, okay, there's a lot of rules there for the priesthood. Okay, then you get into Numbers, and you're going, wow, there's a lot of numbers uh, and a lot of names. And, and then you get, and at that point, Jayana said, Dad, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She goes, okay. There will be a whole chapter where God is talking to Moses and saying, Moses, I want you to do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Okay, and then the very next chapter, Dad, it says, and then Moses did A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. She goes, wouldn't it have made sense to just say that God told Moses A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then it says, and Moses did it. I go, yeah, that, that would make the Bible a whole lot shorter, and may, maybe we could get through it by, by reading through. So, so with that said, these next few, several verses in, in chapter 26 is the retelling of Paul's story. You have heard it before if you've been around. As we've gone through the, the book of Acts, you've probably heard it three or four times now. So, in order to save a little time, for those of you who already know the story, I'm going to highlight parts of the story. For those of you who are not familiar with it, let me give you an outline. This is basically what the next several verses say. Paul is giving his testimony. He says, listen, I, I grew up a religious person. I became a Pharisee, one of the, the top religious political figures of the day. Also, when Christianity began, I saw it as a threat, as a heresy, so I began to oppose it. And I was for the execution of as many Christians as possible. And on one occasion, when I was on the hunt for some Christians up in Damascus, Jesus showed up supernaturally, blinded me, and told me that I was wrong, told me the truth, and put me back on the right track. Then I regained my eyesight, both physically and spiritually, and God made me the apostle to the Gentiles. And now my message to all people, is that through the Jewish scriptures, we were told that the Christ had to die and then be risen from the dead in order to bring salvation to the entire world. Okay, now we're at verse 24. You like that? You go, man, if you could preach like that every week, Trey, that would be great. That's basically what he is talking about, his story. Now, there are two responses to this story. Festus has a response and Agrippa has a response. Festus' response is basically, you're crazy, Paul. Look at verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupts Paul and says, you are out of your mind, Paul. <laughs> your great learning is driving you insane. You're crazy, Paul. Talking about a guy being raised from the dead. Really? Paul says, I'm not crazy. And by the way, Agrippa has a pretty good idea of what I'm talking about, Festus. And so now comes the moment of truth for Agrippa. Paul asks him in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Do you believe the Old Testament prophets who would talk about the Messiah, who would tell about God's heart for the entire world? King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He says, I know that you do. I know that you do. Now, talk about putting somebody on the spot. There is no wiggle room right now for Agrippa. He is surrounded by these people that he wants to impress. He, he is now on 
the spot. Do you believe this, Agrippa? You being a Jew, the king of the Jews, do you believe the Old Testament? Do you you believe that the Old Testament prophets foretold about the suffering of the Christ? Now, I got to tell you, Agrippa's great-grandfather believed. That's why he wanted to kill all the children, all the boys, because he was threatened by this new king of the Jews. So how is Agrippa going to respond being put on the spot? Now, now some of you, as as you're listening to this, you're getting something in in the pit of your stomach that you think, that's not right. That ain't cool. Uh, you, You may be a little uncomfortable about Agrippa being put on the spot. Why? Well, we, we know Thanksgiving is coming up. You know that there are, when a large gathering occurs at, at Thanksgiving, you don't want to ruin Thanksgiving by bringing up a particular topic or two. Well, what are the two taboo things that you don't bring up at Thanksgiving? Politics and religion. Why? Because you don't want to make people uncomfortable. You don't want to tell them that they're wrong. You don't want to put them on the spot. So some of you are thinking, that stinks. Paul, you have now put Agrippa in this horrible position. And for some of you, that might be off-putting. But I want to spin it in a different way for you today, rather than seeing Paul as being pushy. True story. Charles Swindoll, who is a pastor and an author, he tells a story, true story, about flying out of Portland, PDX, going down to L.A. with his wife one day. They had reached cruising altitude when all of a sudden the plane jolted and tilted. And obviously something was wrong. The flight attendant had everybody back in their seats with a seatbelt sign on. And over the PA, the pilot came on and said, we are experiencing mechanical difficulties. We have to go back to PDX and land. So they did. And as soon as the plane touched down, though, the flight attendant got on the PA system and made a different announcement. The the announcement was this. As soon as we open these doors, you are to vacate this plane immediately. Why? Because they had received a bomb threat while they were in the air. The people were to get off the plane immediately and to leave all belongings behind. Swindoll says, would you believe that people actually stopped to open up the overhead compartments? Because they wanted to grab their their carry-ons or their briefcases. And Swindoll said he was shocked at the lack of urgency in the passengers. Now, let me relate that to Paul and Agrippa. You might think, well, those flight attendants were pretty rude, telling them that they can't open up the the compartment, take their stuff. How rude of them! That's pretty pushy. (laughs) Now, it has nothing to do with being pushy or being rude. It has everything to do with caring about the lives of the passengers. Amen? So Paul is not being pushy or rude. He cares about Agrippa. He says, I I want you and everybody around us to get it. Look at at this. uh, Let's look at verse 28 where he says, Agrippa said to Paul, oh, I'm sorry. He says, I I know you do. Um, So let me go back. Paul has put Agrippa on alert. Do you believe this, Agrippa? What does Agrippa say in verse 28? He says, ah, Do you think that in such a short time you could persuade me to be a Christian? (laughs) Almost persuaded. Do you really think in such a short time you could persuade me to be a Christian? Now, we, we cannot tell in print whether he was being sarcastic or sincere or cynical. 
But what, what we do know is this. What we can know is this. Agrippa, at this point, makes a choice. He made a choice to remain an almost disciple. That's how he ends his story. And we never know. We never know. He leaves this story as an almost disciple. Now, almost is an interesting word. You know what almost means. It means you, you weren't quite there. It wasn't quite fulfilled. It, it could be a good thing. I almost died, which means I didn't. Or it could be a bad thing. He almost survived, which means he didn't, right? Golfers. How, how many golfers here in this room you, you enjoy playing golf? Okay. Have you ever almost gotten a hole in one? This picture to golfers, does this make you feel happy and excited that you almost got it? No. This is the most frustrating thing in the world. I can't... Can there be a slight earthquake, please? That was, a whole, that was almost a hole in one. Almost. Yeah. Oh, would you be persuaded to go on a game show that says, who wants to almost be a millionaire? And you're guaranteed that you will never win. Would you like to go on that kind of a game show? <laughs> How about this? Would, would you, true story, would you buy this book, How to Have an Almost Perfect Marriage? That's a real book. I didn't make that one up. How to Have an Almost Well, really? Are we shooting for almost at that point? In baseball, what happens when you almost hit the ball? What is it called? A strike. What happens when you get three of those? You're out. Folks, when it comes to being an almost disciple, you, you, you wonder what was behind Agrippa's decision. Now, now, you might say, well, he didn't decide. Yes, he did. He decided to not decide. And so really the question for you here today is this. Why? Why do people remain almost disciples? Why have some of you decided to remain an almost disciple. Is it, is it fear? Is it fear? I mean, that, that, that could be legitimate. You, you fear what people might think of you. You know, Agrippa might be looking over here at Festus, who just made fun of Paul. And if now he stands for what Paul is saying is true, now, and he wants to curry favor with the new governor, may, maybe that's not going to go well. And, and maybe he fears that. Fear keeps people in the pew, in their chairs, far too long when the invitation song goes and there's a tugging at your heart and you say yeah I, I probably should make a decision and you do you decide to stay exactly where you are and almost disciple that maybe it's just procrastination you, you think you know what i'm still young i got time i'm gonna have fun in life first do the, all these cool things that the Bible probably wouldn't want me to do. And then when I get older, then I'll get serious about my relationship with God. Maybe for you, it's just being busy. Busyness. You got too much going on right now. You, you got a new baby or you got kids in school and in sports or, or, or you, you got that new job. Now, now, all of those things could be your excuse, but I, I would be willing that in every one of those cases, I could probably push past those excuses and see that really what's going on is a lack of trust. That ultimately, you would rather trust your own goodness, your own righteousness, your own ability to, to make the scales balance more towards the good than the bad and get yourself into heaven your own way 
than to trust in the, the sacrifice of Jesus. You know, so you might feel fear because you don't know how to trust a God who seems mysterious at times. Or, or, or you may put the decision off because you're not ready to put your life into somebody else's hands. Or you've never made it a priority because, yeah, dying is really not on the forefront of your mind. And so why should I even think about eternity until I'm on my deathbed? Well, well, that's my point for those of you who are on the fence today. You don't know when that's going to happen. So you're playing an awfully risky game of almost disciple. There's a TV show on Discovery Channel called I Almost Got Away With It. I almost got away with it. Do you, do you know where 100% of those guys are? Yeah, yeah, you, you know. Um, you know, if you hear somebody say, well, I almost never blank. I almost never speed. Well, what does that mean? It means sometimes they speed. I mean, if I told you, well, I almost never kill anyone. You say, I'm not going to hang out with you because there's a chance because obviously you do or you have. Nobody wants an almost award. Nobody wants an almost award. You know, you're trying to break the record. You didn't break the record. You were trying to win the game. You didn't win the game. So here, you get an almost award. Paul is heartbroken because Agrippa actually was okay with an almost award. And so look what he says in verse 29. Paul replies, listen, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Paul's heartbroken and wants Agrippa and those around to get it, to get off of the fence so that they can make that decision that will be the best benefit and the best blessing that they would ever receive in their life. And the tragedy is seen in the next few verses as we close up this chapter. The king, King Agrippa, rose and with him, the governor, Festus, and Bernice, and those sitting with him, and they left the room, and while talking with one another, they said, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or even imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if, it had, if he had not appealed to Caesar. You see, for them, the tragedy was, well, sorry, because he appealed to Caesar, we can't let him go. Sorry, that's the tragedy. You, you, you appeal to Caesar. Now you got to go to Caesar. They think that that's the tragedy. You probably know what the real tragedy was, is that they got up and they walked away. They walked away. Rather than making a decision to get off the fence and stop being an almost disciple. I want to invite the worship team to come on up and we're going to close our service with a challenge. You, you see we have a tank over here with water. That symbolizes someone who gives up their life to follow Jesus, to become a disciple. It does not save you. God's grace saves you. His forgiveness saves you. But by going through the waters of baptism, you receive in your body a mark of a covenantal relationship with God. 
So we celebrate when people are baptized because they are telling us they have received salvation and they now have a renewed relationship with their God. Now, we've had a lot of baptisms this, this year. Back in February, like 8 to 12 people uh, came forward to be baptized. It's, it's about time, folks, because many of you have stayed with us through this whole time saying, yes, I, I, I like what you're saying about Acts, but I'm still not sure. Folks, it's time to get off the fence. In my experience, just like Agrippa, the people who have made a decision to not become a disciple, they know what it's about. They've heard about Jesus for most of their life, may have been brought up in a good moral family to, to believe in God. Uh, they, they may have been taught to, to be good citizens, but that's not what we're talking about today. It's not about making you a moral person. It's not about persuading you to our way of thinking and, ha-ha, we have more baptisms than that other church. It's not about a political slant. It's not about controlling the way that you live your life. It's not a way of swindling you out of your money. What's it about? John 3.16. It's about your relationship, a renewed relationship with a God who loved you, a God who created you to have a relationship, a relationship with you, who loves you so much that he'd be willing to die to pay your penalty. That's all about trusting in Jesus. Here's what the Bible teaches in in a nutshell. You were created in God's image and you were created to have a relationship with him. But you were also created with the ability to choose the right thing or the wrong thing. And as soon as we chose the wrong thing, the Bible calls that sin. Which, by the way, that's not a real heavy theological word. It comes from archery. Like when you're aiming at the, the, the bullseye and you miss, they would call that a sin. You've missed the mark. The Bible says that all of us have missed the mark. And because of sin, our relationship with God has been broken. And so mankind developed something called religion. An effort on our part to try to make things right and to get back to God. But religion is always dependent upon your effort. Being good enough, doing the right things, making sure that that balance has more good than bad. But the Bible is clear. That's not what's going to make you clean. The Bible says that even your most righteous acts cannot make you clean enough to stand before a holy God. It tells us that your sin demands a payment, and that payment is death. And so you can either rely on your own death, or you can rely on the death of a man named Jesus who is God in the flesh. You see, God looked down and understood our dilemma and said, I have a plan. I will come down in the form of a man, Jesus. I will live a sinless life so that I can be the perfect sacrifice to wipe away the sin of humanity. And when Jesus went to the cross, he carried with him the sin of the entire world, including yours. And once he was raised to life, God accepted that sacrifice and forgiveness and restored relationship was now made available to the entire world. And so the gospel gives us a choice. Do we want to trust in our own righteousness or the righteousness from God? Or do we want to trust in our own death to pay our penalty? Or do we want to focus in and trust the, the, the death of Jesus Christ to, to bring us the, the penalty uh, paid for in full? Now, that, this involves humility. 
It, it means that you swallow your pride. It means that you have to say, yeah, I need a Savior because I am a sinner. I, I also have to acknowledge that I have no power to reconnect myself with God. But then it says, I'm going to take God at his word and know that no matter what I've done, he loves me and that he wants to forgive me when I come to him. And that as I step forward and, and put my life in his hands and even go through baptism, that I know the Holy Spirit will live in me and will change who I am from my sinful nature into uh, a nature that reflects God's holiness. Folks, that's discipleship. That's what it means to get off of the path that you're on and to go, begin the path of discipleship. Second Peter verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9 tells us that God is patiently waiting for you. He's patiently waiting for you. That's why he's waiting. He wants you to be a disciple, not a desperado. Remember that song, right? Desperado, why don't you come to your senses? You've been out riding fences for so long. That song ends, come down from the fence and open the gate. But you don't even have to open the gate, folks, because that gate has been opened for you by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ.